0: to New Books and South Asian Studies, hosted by Dara Anjaria out of Bombay, India. We won't be discussing Bombay today, though. We'll be hopping 3,000 kilometers across the subcontinent to look at the former capital of the East. Our guest today is Professor Peter Robb, Research Professor of the History of India at London School of Oriental and African Studies. Professor Robb, Fellow of the Royal Asiatic Society, Has had a long and distinguished career as a South Asianist and has published extensively about the 19th century colonial state in South Asia. Today he is going to talk to us about his latest book, Richard Blenchenden's Calcutta Diaries. Good afternoon, Mr. Rob. Hello. Good afternoon. Uh, Thank you
2: very much uh, for agreeing to do this interview for the New Books Network.
1: Welcome.
2: Um, professor Rob, you've had a long and distinguished career researching South Asia. Could you just tell us something about your career to date?
1: Um, I'm currently a professor in History of India at SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies. And I've spent my entire career there because I found that I was in the place that was best to be, right, fortunately right at the beginning. I started off working on um, reform policy and, and political policy in the early 20th century, I then did various things of that sort, I then moved on to working on the agrarian history, mainly of Bihar, and then I started to do some work on uh, surveyors, and the way in which surveyors were constructing an image of India, and in the course of that I came across the... Uh, the diaries in the British Library, which are the subject of the books that we're going to talk about. Um, and I spent um, a very long time uh, working on those, because they're, they're enormous, <coughs> and uh, was somewhat interrupted by becoming uh, the deputy head of SOAS for five years. And when I got back to it, I then produced these these books. So that's a sort of rundown of what I've been doing to now.
2: Hmm. Um, so just a question before we discuss the book. Uh, since you've been at SOAS, I think for almost 40 years, how do you think it has evolved? How do you think the historiography at uh, SAVAAS has you know, changed over the years? Obviously you've been instrumental in framing a lot of the curriculum.
1: Well, it's, when I first went there, it was mostly research students and a large number of staff relative to the number of students. We had a few undergraduates, but not very many. And it was, shall we say, um, it, it was a, a remarkably stuffy place, despite the fact that it was peopled by eccentrics. It was a curious combination. Uh, it has been transformed out of all recognition since then. It's now extremely big, extremely busy, extremely bustling. Uh, it's expanded enormously into the social sciences. Uh, with some, at some cost relatively to the, to arts and humanities and, and the study of languages, uh, it's getting new buildings, it's got a lot of new facilities. I'm quite optimistic about its future, even in the present difficult circumstances of British universities. Uh, it's financially sound and we now have very large numbers of overseas students as well as, I um, by our standards, large numbers of undergraduates. So it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting um, uh, place to be. I think, as far as the curriculum is concerned, perhaps the most interesting thing is that, uh, for historians, we have completely moved away from any idea of the old um, and, and thoroughly discredited divide of, of history into periods related to um, ancient India or so-called Mughal India, and then the so-called British period. And those borders uh, in time have been, um, they've been completely changed into ones which are much more analytical in character. So we talk about the early modern period, and we talk about um, a modern period which runs forward uh, to the present day. I did a History of India um, some years ago in which, I more or less stopped in about 1970, and the stuff after 1947 was fairly perfunctory. And I had to revise it recently, and now there's a very much longer section, which takes us up to um, 2011. This is very new for historians, and this is the way things are are moving. So a lot of your work has actually been, you know,
2: quite technical in nature, you're talking about land, you're talking about rights, Uh, it's not really been social history, so how do Richard's diaries actually fit into your research? How did you come across them?
1: Well, it was. you're quite right, I've never done anything like this before, and uh, my wife said, oh, you're finally writing books that people might want to read, as opposed to books which are about (laughs) tenancy questions and so on. There's a few things I've done which have been more general, I, I... Uh, spent quite a number of years as the chair of the SOAS Centre for South Asian Studies, and we produced a lot of volumes, including volumes on race and on labour and things of that sort. Um, And so I was interested in those questions, but I had never done any real primary research in them, until I encountered these diaries. And when I encountered the diaries, I wasn't intending to write the sort of thing that I did write, but I discovered that they were... uh, remarkably interesting, remarkably frank, and uh, remarkably full. And I asked about, and nobody had ever made any se- serious use of them before, and so I thought, well, this is a, this is a new departure for me. Um, we had some, we had a little um, workshop on uh, biography and autobiography starting in SOAS around about the same time. And it's certainly true that this level of uh, of inquiry has become increasingly more of interest to historians over the last decades. And people are, um, you know, they're no longer talking only about those huge impersonal processes that I spent quite a lot of my time working on, and have become much more interested in, in the stories from below, and in, in the stories of individual actors, and I thought that this this gave one an insight into questions that you, you couldn't ask at all, except from this kind of source. I've just became increasingly fascinated by them and had quite a lot of trouble working out um, what it was that I was I was going to write from them, because they're so extensive.
2: So, Yeah, that brings us to the next question, actually. How did you pick and choose? How did you choose what to include and what to leave out? What were your criteria?
1: Yes, well, it evolved, actually. I, I started by... Um, Realising that there were very interesting things that could be said about uh, relations between uh, European men and Indian women, and then more generally between men and women, and also particularly between Phoebe's concubines and European men, and I thought, of course, that's long been of interest to historians, and people have done a lot of work on this sort of thing at at a general level. I thought that the sort of information I had gave you a different dimension to these stories, much more personal, much more intimate, um, much more, actually, paradoxically, from the side of the women, because their conversations of what they do are recorded in great detail in in the diary. And not just about my diarist, Richard Fletchenden, but also about lots of other people because he talks to his friends and recounts anecdotes and meets people and talks about their situations as well. Now, that was my first um, take on this, and I thought I could write something which was about that, but the more I wrote about that, the more I saw that it introduced broader questions as well, and so I started including in a manuscript those kinds of background, and Contextual textual materials which helped you understand the story of the Compromise. Then it got far too big and eventually it was quite apparent if I was going to offer it to any publisher that I had to divide it. And so I realised that really there was a different subject altogether which was a subject which was much more about the construction of identity um, much less about gender <clears throat> much more about um, national traits and, and stereotypes and, to some extent, therefore, relations between Indians and Europeans, and among Europeans. And the, the two sites for that investigation, which is in the second book, um, is, uh, the two sites are um, servants in the general world of work and children, and the European uh, fathers, mixed-race children are, as I say in the book, a great effort is made to turn them into English people, and they're sent back to England for education, and they're inculcated with all sorts of ideas, and they are given either husbands or professions which match that. As far as the servants are concerned, for me it was very interesting that there was a a, a tremendous um, sense of intimacy between servants and workers of various sorts, and the uh, European employer, but nonetheless uh, uh, persistent stereotypes that the Indian um, servants were unreliable, untrustworthy, uh, and so on and so forth. And so all sorts of stereotypes were being built about what Indians were like out of these relationships not on the basis of what the relationships were really like, but on the basis of, of how they were described and perceived to be. And the other irony about that is that, if at the same time, an image of Europeans as being upright and dedicated trustworthy and so on was also being built in the midst of evidence that they were absolutely the opposite to that. They were unreliable, they were corrupt, they were mean-spirited, and so on and so forth. So I was very interested in this um, kind of dialogue, almost, between what was the real experience and what was the experience as it was distilled and described. And I saw that as being sort of focused by the attitude of the children. So that was, that was the, the sort of originally to be the background to the book about men and women, but it actually turned into a subject in its own right. That was why the, the second book, was, was um, those introductory materials were, were separated out. As far as the first book, the concubines book, I was concerned really to look at other sorts of stereotypes which see these women as people without agency, without a voice, uh, victims... Um, And therefore, from that, seeing that colonialism itself was was all about oppression and victimhood. And I was trying to say, once you listen to these people, you actually find they've got quite a lot of agency. Um, They're quite vigorous in expressing their opinions, violent sometimes, that they have the capacity, despite all the disabilities that women suffer, they have the capacity to make choices. And I was drawing the kind of an analogy between that and the and the relationship between India and and uh, imperial power that India too has has agency in these matters. It's not just uh, a victim as it were. So that was the that was my thinking about these these, these two books.
2: Uh, one thing I found interesting before the rest of the interview is that the form that you chose to have the diaries published and, you know, normally the standard is to, you know, publish extracts, you know, but here you've actually reworked, like, the narrative, you know, using your own voice, I mean, and you've described Richard and his life, you know, in the third person, um, so why the reason for choosing this method of telling the story?
1: Yes, yes, one, one of the people that were reading it beforehand said, it uh, reads like a novel, and mm-hmm. I, I laughed because I said, Actually, it's probably closer to my sources than anything I've ever written, because when you're writing a general history, you get masses and masses of material, and you try to generalize from it. Whereas in this case, I had a very specific uh, uh, sense of evidence, and I was trying to tell stories which were not in the diary's own words, but which were nonetheless very, very close to the sense of it and to the motion of it, even to the repetition of it, and so on, in in that uh, context. And I did that deliberately, because it seemed to me the only way you could bring across vividly the the nature of the diaries. And one of my points was to tell people these are fantastic sources. Um, You know, everybody knows about Pepys' diary uh, in in Britain, um, and it's much published and much written about Nobody, this diary is not even mentioned in the lists of, of major diaries, but it's a really major source. So I was trying to capture that. Why didn't I do it verbatim? Well, um, there's about 80 volumes. I don't think any publisher would have been interested. And if I had um, tried to do some kind of extracts, the problem is the stories are not told like that. They all interweave. And so what I've done is I've taken a story which might run over many years from hundreds and hundreds of different um, diary entries um, and told that story as, as a coherent thing. But it doesn't occur like that in the diary. There's an enormous amount of um, bringing together and reorganizing which has to go on to make the stories understandable and, and readable. But I was certainly hoping that people would get the, <clears throat> the intimate feel of, of the diary, which is why it's not like anything I've ever done before, because I've never ever written um, things that anybody could describe as being a bit like a novel. <laughs> and, uh, and there's no, no doubt at all that this is a new department book. And some people won't like it. They will say, this isn't proper history. I felt a bit defensive about this, because I think it is proper history, and I think it shows you things about um, the past which you can't, you cannot. Access um, in, in any other way except by the, using this sort of source. <clears throat> if I'd done a sort of dry general analysis of it, I think that would have been much less interesting, and it would lo- have lost the flavour of it. I think, uh, my hope is that as you read it, you get a real sense of how uh, of what it was like and how people felt. It's quite a lot about emotions, and um, the study of emotions is something which is pretty hard to, to do except that
2: uh, uh, we telling stories of the soul. <coughs> so, going back to Richard and his BBs, and he seems to have had quite a lot of them, uh, there's an interesting gradation that he makes, you know, towards the close of the volume. He talks about the differences, you know, he actually seems to club together, you know, country-born and Eurasian and uh, native Indian BBs, <coughs> and then he plays a European, you know, woman born in England, you know, on a separate, uh, well, he just classifies them separately, so would you say that a lot of like this is where the discrimination against country born European people started?
1: Yes, but there's definitely um, there's definitely very early discrimination against um, any European born in India, um, mm. unless it's annulled as it were by their going to England for their education and then being sort of reaccepted in, into the British society. A lot of the country born so-called Europeans were, of course, of mixed race in this period, and so that that's an additional complication. My reason for um, sort of de- dealing with the succession of these periods was partly to demonstrate the similarities between them, rather than the differences. I mean, if you think about the um, the fact that one has ideas about how people, how Europeans at that time regarded race, you might think either that, that it's, it's much less prejudiced than it was, say, later in the 19th century, or that there's already quite a lot of discriminatory feelings. And I think in some senses both of those things are true. And, but, but what is revealed in my examples is that the life, the demands, the experiences of these different babies doesn't seem to have had all that much to do was the fact that they were either Indian or uh, Eurasian or European, Um, even uh, whether they were country-born or not. What really mattered was an issue of class and status. They were, um, in some senses, within the world of kept women, they were the highest possible status, but they were always inferior to a wife um, or to an unmarried, respectable woman. And therefore, uh, they shared a sort of common um, discrimination against them on those grounds. Um, and that, not that that stopped either. They're asserting themselves, or feelings of emotional love between the, uh, the, 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 the their employer, as it were, uh, and themselves, or indeed the many examples which others found just um, of care for them in. in, in in people's wills, or in provision made for them, um, at all, almost sort of retirement provisions for them, and so on. All of that goes on, and some of that's well known. And what I've tried to do is, is to demonstrate that it, it wasn't actually about, um, it wasn't about race. It was about class, it was about status, um, but it wasn't about race. I then go on to, to talk a bit about attitudes to race in, in most books because I think it's quite a difficult question. And everybody recognizes that it's different in the um, by the second half of the 19th century from what existed before. But if you look at the details of how these Europeans behaved and how they thought, you find that in the um, 18th century already there's a great deal of discrimination, a great deal of stereotyping. Um, I... Um, perhaps particularly by, by people from Britain, um, in my case, because they, they also disapprove of the French and the Portuguese and everyone else. Um, yeah. And they certainly look down upon Indians as being um, lots of things which they claim that they're not. And as I said earlier, um, this is despite the fact that how Indians actually behave and how Europeans actually behave. It becomes a kind of uh it's it's almost an idea of superiority um, which is uh divorced from the reality in which in which they live. And that is in itself quite interesting because it suggests it comes from something else. It comes out of ideologies, it comes out of uh of um, assertions about how you respond to difference, uh which are which which are not um, they're not made quasi scientific in, in pretense that it was in the later 19th century, but it's certainly got very deep roots in, in the way people behave and how they perceive themselves, and I think it relates to the way they're defining their own character, and, and therefore I think there is the idea that there was a sort of golden age of, of relations between Indians and Europeans in the 18th century, which some have argued, <coughs> which gives way to racial antagonism in the late 19th century, uh, i just don't think that's true. I think there's a mixture which is it's a more complicated and more nuanced story than that. so that was my take on 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 those questions <clears throat>
2: so, as you know, I mean Richard and maybe other you know Englishmen of this time they often had you know violent prejudice against non british Europeans, and uh, you see a lot of stuff about the books that's something I found very surprising. But, uh, despite this, he actually let his son marry a woman who was definitely Portuguese. I mean, because she was Tireta's wife's sister. And he didn't even really approve of the family, I think. So how did that happen? Sorry,
1: which, which one was?
2: Yes, yeah, I, uh, I think, uh, uh, Mrs. Tireta's younger sister, she married into Richard's family. And, uh, she was obviously Portuguese. So, I mean, how did he actually, I don't permit or condone that? Because he obviously had a lot of prejudices against, you know, non British Europeans.
1: Uh, my, my assumption is actually she was French. But, mm-hmm. uh, and he was prejudiced against uh, Europeans. Um, but uh, it's interesting. At one level, you're prejudiced against the Europeans and you don't think much of the Portuguese. You really, in his case, thought um, very badly of, of um, the Republican French, as you would expect. I mean, they, were the, they were the fête noire for of, 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 of the true-blooded Englishmen in the Napoleonic period. They represent all that was bad. He nonetheless had very close ties with French people, and he was very friendly with Toretta, who was Italian. And so his... Um, what you get is a kind of solidarity among Europeans. Europeans as a whole are, uh, uh, um, are superior in his eyes to um, in anyone of non-European uh, background, including people of mixed race, um, even though his own children were of mixed race. Uh, but he, um, he was... Um, He was very happy, I think, in that particular marriage. Because if you think about it, his half-Indian son marries a woman who I think, my assumption is, uh, was possibly uh, India-born, but wholly French, wholly European. So he is not at all worried about that. He probably would have preferred she'd married married a... She'd married a good English girl. But this was a girl that he'd known from childhood, that he had supported in England, who had been brought up herself in England from an early age, when she was sent back from from, uh, Calcutta by her uh, stepfather. And so I think she represented a a perfectly um, acceptable uh, marriage from the point of view of a man who was trying to turn his um mixed race child uh, back into an English person. Which indeed he succeeded in doing because all his all the children of that marriage are regarded as English. They marry English people um on into the generations. Mm-hmm. Hello, I hope we so, lost
2: Yes. Uh no, that's uh, fine. Yes, that happened that time. That's all right. Um yes. So, yeah. So, could you say that uh, in this case there were many different, like, advantages and disadvantages that, you know, you could be born into or that you could acquire, but, you know, some of them could cross out the other? Sorry, I didn't quite hear
1: that question.
2: There was some interruption on the on the line. Yeah. yeah, what I was saying was that, could you say that uh, somebody living in Krakatai in those days, I mean, they could be born with a set of advantages, I don't know, maybe parentage or maybe class or caste. And then they could also have some kind of, you know, disadvantage. Maybe they were not from the right kind of racial background or they didn't have, I don't know, the right kind of professional background. But as uh, you, they could like use one of their, well, for lack of a better word, skills, you know, to sort of, you know, move up socially.
1: Yes, yes, I do. And I think, yeah. um that's one of the ways in which there's mm-hmm. some truth in the idea that things were a bit easier mm-hmm. at this period than later. Um, mm-hmm. I think the labels, become much more um, much more rigid uh, later on. And I actually think that's probably true for, for Indians as well as for, for Europeans in, in this period. And um, it's quite clear that Calcutta is absolutely stuffed full of self-made men. Um, I say men, most of them were men. And that included Europeans and Indians, people that were on the main. There were lots of opportunities for people. And if you... Um, if you've advanced in career terms and you've gained status, uh, this, um, then people might laugh at your humble background. They might make little jokes about it, but it would not really affect the fact that you could be very powerful and become very rich and very successful. And I think the barriers um, were um, were notably looser than they were perhaps at other times and at other places. I think that was also true of Britain to a lesser extent in this period, but um, it was certainly true of Calcutta. And as far as race is concerned, after about the 1830s, there's a much more determined effort to call people Anglo-Indian, to see them as a community, and it was much harder, though it still happened, it was much harder for people to somehow sort of merge back into one community or or the other, or at least particularly to merge into a European community and be accepted um, for all intents and purposes as as European, um, even though they were only half European. And and that was the pattern that went on with um, Richard Blancherton's two sons (coughs) and with his uh, daughters, all of whom married uh, Europeans. And that, um, I think was not as easy later on. Um, and I think it's also true that the whole business of illegitimacy, of, being, um, of not being married, um, all of the sanctions against that become stronger uh, than they were. They existed in the um, late 18th and early 19th century, definitely. Um, there was clear uh, premium on being a wife and on being legitimate. But it was not ever an absolute impediment, unless somebody wanted to make it so. And I think that rules in this period rather have that of that type. Um, there are rules, and the rules are becoming more and more elaborate. But you don't take any notice of them unless someone draws your attention to them. And if you do, then you have to, or you may use the rule to 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 attack someone that you want to attack. But the rule isn't, in itself, something that's necessarily difficult to overcome. And I think that's true in politics and administration and, and in business, as, as well as in social life. And so, um, by the later, by about the 1830s and 40s, as I say, most of those things are becoming much harder, much more, um, much more rigid, and they, they become self-fulfilling prophecies. So, if you are an Anglo-Indian, Then you're assumed to have certain characteristics, to be eligible for certain kinds of job, uh, to be not eligible for other sorts of kinds of job, and then that becomes, uh, it it then fulfills itself because those are the sorts of jobs you get. Those tend to be the sorts of characteristics you might have. And so that sort of almost directive, um, force of, of, of attitudes and rules I don't think that exists before. Yeah. That's why there's a fluidity in it. what's
2: possible. Well, what I can see from the diaries is that Richard, you know, he definitely thought a lot about England. He wrote to his family, he sent his kids out there. But uh, he never seems to have made any, any attempt, you know, to go back himself, even for a short visit. Um, why was that?
1: Well, because he couldn't afford it. Um, and he, uh, and, and, and remember, it, it was a very, very long that you would would have to expect to be away at least a year and um, you might or might not have an easy journey it was quite expensive you had to pay for a passage you had to pay for all your food and everything on board for months Um, he found it very difficult to get hold of um, um, ready cash for much of his career I think by um At some point, he doesn't ever say, but at some point he realized that his whole career was going to have to be in India and in Calcutta. and That was what was familiar to him. He had all sorts of obligations there. And at the time at which he might have thought of going, his children were returning from England, and so there were reasons for him to stay. He was, at the point at which he might have gone, um, he, he was really in in a terrible uh, financial uh, situation. As he became more prosperous, it, became, it was always difficult for him, him to go. And I think he wasn't, um, he wasn't himself high enough status uh, to find it easy. Um, there were people who were either East India Company servants, um, therefore um, got preferential treatment on the passages, or they were exceptionally rich, they had businesses that would continue in their absence, those sorts of things. Uh, made, those people did travel to and fro, and, and it was not uncommon, um, despite the rigors and difficulty of the journey that people would do that. Uh, but for a man like Richard Fletcher, who a sort of middle-level person, who depended upon receiving his salary, um, but much more importantly on doing extra work beyond his salary from from, the, from Calcutta. Um, he couldn't really afford to go, and I think that was why. He, he was constantly bemoaning it. Every now and again he would write and say, here I am, stuck in this place, never get home, and so on and so forth. And when um, people that he was fond of died in England, and you heard the news, you'd get another little, uh, little patch of this heart, going, oh, I shall never get home, I shall never get to see them. And, of course, indeed, he didn't. Did. So, um, I suppose if he had lived longer. Um, mm-hmm. It's conceivable he might have once his children were established in India mm-hmm. that he might then have got a pension from the company and, and considered returning uh, but he was still working when, when he died so that never happened.
2: But uh, why was he so anxious you know that even his children come back to India you know wouldn't it have made more sense for them you know to just stay on in England? I mean especially the daughters?
1: Um, I, I, I i don't I think it was always intended that they would return to England uh, to India from england um, and I think that was because he saw it as his responsibility as as fathers commonly did at this time to see that they were well placed in in a profession probably in his own profession afterwards um, it was normal for uh, the, the someone that was in a particular profession, as well as people that had their own businesses and companies, uh, to hope that their sons would succeed them in that office or that business. And so it was natural that uh, he would expect his children to come back and do that. And indeed, he, he conducted himself um, in his business in such a way as to see if he, he would t- attempt to make a place for them. He, would t- he t- took on extra work, he t- did all sorts of things to imply that he needed a deputy and the deputy should be his, his son. And when it was agreed he needed a deputy and the, um, the people suggested it should be someone else, he was extraordinarily indignant to thought they betrayed him. Um, and this was, as I say, very normal. It was so normal that the company passed rules about it, uh, saying that they couldn't any longer um, appoint people to any office uh, while the the father, uh, they couldn't appoint a son to any office, while the father was still active and still able to work. The implication was that you couldn't have two people in the same job, that would be corrupt. But equally, that if the father couldn't work any longer, then there was an expectation the son might well follow him. So I think that's why the, the boys had to come back to India, where he could support them, and he could you know, write letters to get them jobs, and speak to friends about things for them, and, and so on and so forth, which is, which indeed he did.
2: Yeah, so he did have quite a network in India, and what I can see is that, you know, he was very rigid when it came to his children, James, for instance, Sarah. I mean, he had very, like, strong expectations, very clear kind of expectations, but, you know, when it comes to negotiating with his friends, his servants, even his babies, he seems to have been, you know, a lot more accommodating. I mean, with the servants, he allowed them a lot of leeway,
1: Yes, um, he was constantly saying he was too soft, and I think some people thought he was, because you see evidence of Europeans who treated their servants extremely badly. Uh, I mean, there's one character, Townsend Jones, a, a lawyer that appears in, in, the, in, in, the, in both books, actually, um, and he was widely known to have murdered two of his servants, and uh, for various reasons, uh, technicalities of one sort or another, and the fact that the justice system was extremely partial to, uh, and, and not a justice system at all, he got off, but it was notorious that he'd got off. Um, but, people being beaten, people being uh, not paid, people being summarily dismissed and thrown in the street, all of this was, was certainly uh, quite common, um, not universal by any means, because I think there were norms that grew up about how you should behave towards servants, and I think that was important. Um, but Vetchenden, yes, he was, he was a man who prided himself on being fair and on being reasonable. And so he wasn't always either fair or reasonable, but he was always trying to be. And so he certainly had these uh, relations with his servants in which he would forgive them for doing things that were really wrong. Uh, even a couple of his about three or four of his closest um, people, um, he found evidence that they'd been corrupt. Um, he kept them on for years and years and years after these inquiries. Um, it was the way he was. I also think it was not entirely out of choice. I mean, a European working in, as he did in India, anybody working in that uh, sphere, It was quite difficult to organize finance. It's quite difficult to ensure you've got contracts, to get supplies. Um, All of these things were were quite a lot of effort. And it was absolutely characteristic that you'd use an Indian so-called servant or employee who was also an agent in their own right, who might well be putting money themselves into the enterprise, who was helping you with getting your bricks or your mortar or whatever it was that you needed to get supplied. And those kinds of relationships, therefore, weren't exactly employer-employee relationships. They were relationships of of almost partners. Um, And those partnerships then had possibilities for what were then regarded as corruption. And so you would try and get rid of the person at one level, but on the other level you couldn't afford to do so. Uh, You'd never get your money back if you did, and you also needed them. Uh, to be able to continue to work in the way in which people worked in those days. It's not a system as we're familiar with today. If you got a government contract to build a road, you'd think the government would provide you with the money to build the road and you'd send in your accounts. And if you were a government employee who was organising the um, building of the road, you'd think you'd get a salary and that would be it. Oh no, it's not like that at all. If you're a government employee building a road, you expect to make a profit on the road. You have to put up your own money half the time to provide all the all the capital costs and the labour costs. You hope that in due course the company, will, the government, will pay you back. And then you get into arguments about how much they're going to pay you back. And they don't pay you one time, or well, they try to give you um, treasury bills which you can't get any money for except by discounting them in the market, and so on and so forth. It's very unlike. It looks like the system we know, but it's actually very unlike it. And in those circumstances, the relationships between the Indian allies and servants and the European employers or contractors are, are not at all like what you might imagine them to be. They're much more intimate. They're much more mutually dependent. <clears throat> so it's a... I mean, that's... Uh, I'm actually going to write... You You said you'd asked about... Um, future plans, but perhaps I could mention that I'm, I'm actually going to write something about this called Useful Friendships, which I'm halfway through at the moment, which is, which is about this kind of world of, of uh, this strange world of work and of uh, contracting, uh, which, um, and, and indeed lots of other things like raising money and um, repaying debts and, and that sort of thing, uh, which you see very vividly in, in, in these sources.
2: Well, I don't think the situation is all that different
1: today, but going back to the time. I, I see you smiling, but formally it is different. I mean, even, even in India, where I agree there are lots of difficulties, and in this country too, where there are there's, there's lots of um, things which are irregular, but um, what happens here is there's a tender and there's an agreed price. And the contractor may indeed raise his own money, but then he gets paid the agreed price. It's much, much vaguer than that. There's, there's much less system about it. Um, there's much more left to chance and later negotiation. And um, that, my point is only that that means that there's a much greater interdependence between the different partners than now. Now we have modern corporate structures with limited liability. There's none of that was a, it was a, you were responsible and the difference between your domestic and your public life was, was very small or non-existent.
2: <coughs> but uh, despite this, I mean, you know, a, a lot of these people, they would bring the law in at, you know, the slightest provocation, like, you know, they had a domestic dispute and they would run off and bring the magistrates in. So there was no reluctance to get the law, the state structure involved, I mean... Didn't they feel like involving the law would actually have negative repercussions
1: for them? Yes, it's, it's interesting that. Um, they, they do all the time, um, including, as you say, very personal things. They cannot get the magistrate. Now, I think this is a bit different from an Indian uh, agreeing to go to the Tana to make a complaint, uh, because you've got an issue of power here. Um, I, I've got lots of examples of Indians that also did go to law, um, and, and supported indeed by the employer quite often. So it does happen. But it was riskier. You were liable to end up in prison yourself by mistake if you went and made a complaint. A European really had almost no fear of that sort of thing. And the magistrates that they were appealing to were people they met socially. And so they felt that they could do a, a kind of pick and mix of what they would do. They They would discipline their servants themselves, they would act towards them as if they were magistrates and judges, um, they would not see any uh, contradiction between that and going off to the magistrate and saying, come and sort out my baby, she's misbehaving, um, and the magistrate would come along and say, you should behave, young lady, um, but, uh, or, or, or else you can be dismissed. And, and those kinds of mixing of what was public and, and, and private. Uh, 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 very interesting because often people tell a story in which there's a trajectory in which the state becomes more involved in private and domestic things over time. Well, I actually think it's, it's, it's not quite like that. I think the formal structures and laws which are passed do intrude more than the, uh, in later years than they did in earlier years, but in practice there's a very close link between magistrates, justices of the peace, and the private lives of people. And that occurred in, in, in Britain and in, in Europe as well as in Calcutta. The Calcutta system, I think, just reproduces what happens in in, um, in England. Uh, your, your local magistrate, who was a local landlord, uh, he would have the same kind of power over people and would interfere in much the same way in the affairs of of uh, friends and uh, associates, as the magistrates did in in um, in India. Um, so it's, it's a, it is a curious thing that uh, he would he would bring them in, um, and he would um, have very little concern. The only concern he would have would be for his reputation <coughs> if rumours got about, and this was a very gossipy place, Calcutta. So if the story got out. Such and such had happened in his household. He wouldn't be very happy about that, but he was often willing to um, to risk that in order to get some remedy from from uh, some some misdemeanor of, of one of his servants or, or one of his babies
2: oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Sorry. Yeah. Uh So what would you say are your personal favorites, like, you know, what are your favorite incidents in the diary? Hang on, I'll
1: you back later. Sorry, say that again.
2: Yeah. So what are the most uh, memorable incidents that you find in the diary or maybe the most amusing ones?
1: Oh, golly. <laughs> I, should <have>
2: had
1: <laughs> I should have had notice of that question. I mean, I think the central thing for me in the first book is... Um, his relationship with a Eurasian girl called, a young girl called Mary Walker, which gives you this, um, it doesn't last very long, she's very unreliable, she has a Indian servant lover, um, by whom she becomes pregnant, she runs away with someone else, she eventually goes off to Bombay, from which uh, years later he gets a message back from her, saying that she's still uh, remembers him and regrets him, uh, regrets leaving him. This story, for me, <clears throat> um, is is a complete um, encapsulation of the uh, emotional uh, links which which go on in these relationships. He writes poetry for her. He tears his hair out over her. He gets in terrible fights with other people, other Europeans in Calcutta about her. It all goes on for years. Um, it's somehow it's extraordinarily adolescent in a way. It, it, he's, he he writes. You'd, you'd think he was you know sixteen or something, and he's in his forties. And and this kind of the vividness of this relationship sort of casts a shadow over all the rest of the book. So I think that's the that's the thing that I would uh, I, re, I remember most about about that. I suppose the thing which I. It's, it's again not an incident, but a series of of, of uh, stories in the second book is really about one of his daughters um, who uh, opts to uh, seek a marriage with a man whom her father thinks is unsuitable. And his the whole household's life becomes complete misery. And the, for me, the interesting thing about this story is not just the father being unreasonable the man in question by the way turns out to be quite a significant person goes off to Australia where he becomes a man of, of, of some importance um, but anyway the, 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 the significance for me of this story is that it is a um, example of and looking at his mixed race daughter who actually had her face scored by a dog When she was small, so that he mm-hmm. thought she'd never find a husband. I, I, I think obviously it did heal, so it wasn't a problem. But she was a half Indian girl, and everything about this young army officer who was mm-hmm. wooing her was absolutely suitable. He was gentlemanly character, everything was right. And the only thing was that his her father didn't want him to. Uh, he didn't want her to marry another military person because they're where they would be, and their future was so insecure. And for that reason, he went through years of misery with his daughter. And what does that tell you? It tells you that he was not even thinking that there was any problem about getting his daughter a European husband, uh, a respectable European husband who was an army officer with a career ahead of him. He, was, he got choosy. He was going to have the right one. And he was concerned that um, she had that. She actually eventually, eventually she didn't marry, they didn't marry, Um, the man in question didn't marry until he was in his 50s, and she eventually came back to England, the daughter, and married here, Um, and so, but after her father's death. So there was a, a, I mean, there's a vivid and protracted story uh, about that, which I think is quite revealing, again, of of attitudes.
2: Yeah, it's uh, quite a sad story, but moving um, on from that, uh, you did mention something about your current research. Could you tell us something more about that?
1: Yes, I, I realized that, that I really needed to say something else from this material. Uh, though mm-hmm. Also, I want to broaden it out a bit because it's a general point. And I've started writing something which is called Useful Friendships. And mm-hmm. it is the, um, it's a book about the link between social networks and social obligations and reputation, and other fields uh, of a more practical sort, such as um, the whole credit uh, system, raising money, getting debts repaid, uh, allocation of work, who gets the contracts, um, business relationships of various sorts, and also, to some extent, relationships which move into government as well. and and so I'm trying to look at the connection between these and and how instead of the formal things that you might expect that would regulate conduct, it's actually regulated much more by um, the networks of, of of relationships between people. For example, if someone owed you money, you could go to court. You could get them declared a debtor. You could get them thrown in prison as a debtor. It was not thought of as a very nice thing to do. It wasn't very effective. If they were thrown in prison, they certainly couldn't pay you back. Um, and uh, so, and it was extremely time-consuming and expensive and works fees and so on. And so, so what do you do? You get your friends to bring pressure on a person and that's the way you get your debt to pay. And I think that's at the core of this early economic system which helps explain the expansion of European power in um as far as business power and commercial power uh in, um, in in India at this time. And then I have started asking, and I've written on this too, does this extend to Indians? Because as I've shown elsewhere and already spoken about today, there are very close and intimate ties between Indians of various sorts and um, Europeans. And my argument is that it doesn't. That the that although the same words are used, they call each other friends, they give each other backing. There is something different about those relationships, and then I want to ask why that is so. Uh, and my theory is that um, it's not really about racial discrimination or anything of that sort. It's about practicalities. What, did, what sort of networks did Indian entrepreneurs and the big Indian men of the Bajalok uh, in Calcutta, what did they need and how did they establish their position? What was important to them. It wasn't the reputation that they had among these treasuries of Europeans. It wasn't um, backing people because the formal means didn't work. So for the Europeans, that was the clincher argument, your reputation will suffer, no one will do business with you. You said that to a rich Indian and he said, huh, who cares? And so that, that is, that's the substance of that book. So I'm looking at at uh, work and contracts and uh, debt and uh, wills, looking after people, being the executor of people's wills and so on. So I'm about halfway through that.
0: Oh, uh,
2: that sounds fascinating, and uh, actually, we'd love to interview you for that as well when it comes out. Well, of uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, when is it likely to come out?
1: Well, it isn't finished yet, so. <laughs> And I will have to see whether Oxford University Press want a third volume of this sort. They may have had enough with these first two. We shall have to see.
2: I doubt that. I mean, it's been fascinating. I mean, uh, obviously, we've taken up a lot of your time, so we won't give you any more. But thank you very much for doing this for the New
0: Books Network. It's uh, been a pleasure having you talk to us.
1: It's been very nice talking to you.
0: So, Fox. That was Calcutta as it seemed to one Englishman when the Raj was yet new. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.